A lot of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm sure he's fairly familiar to many of us here. He was a German who lived during the time of World War II. And Bonhoeffer was very troubled at the rise of the Nazi party. And in particular, he was troubled at the complicity that the church had in facilitating the rise of Hitler and the Nazis. It was something that he wrote about and spoke about quite a bit. And what Bonhoeffer decided to do was to start a rival church. The rival church, uh, he called it the Confessing Church. And he started a small school as well to help train pastors for this rival church. And he, he starts to write books. His two most famous books, I'm sure many of you have read it, uh, are uh, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. And he sees the church as having the potential to counteract all that's going on in Germany at the time. So Life Together gets published. And how many people have read Life Together? Oh, only a small number. It's a, it's a great book. It's worth reading. So. Uh, Life Together gets into the hands of one of his friends, and his friend goes to Dietrich and says, all right, Dietrich, you're a good writer, but this is a little bit much. This is a little bit extreme. And if, if you've read Life Together, you know what I'm talking about there. And what Dietrich decides to do in response to this is he says, all right, you think it's too much? Let's, uh, let's go on a boat ride. And so they get into a small boat, they row across a river, and they climb up a small mountain, a small hill. And just over the hill, I'll pretend it's over here, just over the hill, Bonhoeffer points out to his friend, there's a Nazi military base right there, and they sit there for a while, and they watch the planes landing, these military warplanes landing and taking off. They watch all these troops with all their German discipline training, they watch uh, these vehicles go in and out of warehouses loading munitions and supplies. It's a, it's a fairly terrifying sight to think of what the, the force that's coming out of this particular military base is delivering. And we know that under Hitler, a comparatively small country of Germany is starting to swallow up and conquer more and more of Europe at the time. And I'll, I'll read to you from a book that's a biography of his. It's called Strange Glory of Bonhoeffer. And so they're up on the hill, and Bonhoeffer says he spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, Bonhoeffer explained, to propose a superior discipline of life among the Christians if the Nazis were to be defeated. Okay, so they're there looking at the scene, and he says... This is a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. He says, I'm proposing through life together to form a superior discipline if the Nazis are going to be defeated. And, and finally, what he says is he says, the church must be stronger than that. The church must be stronger than that. I love that line. The church must be stronger than that. One of the requests that we had in an earlier brothers meeting was to, to have some sessions in our citywides here where we go over just some of the basics of Followers of the Way, why we're here, what our vision is, what we're all about, what are our, our, our core tenets that, that make us who we are. And I am 
right with Bonhoeffer on this. The church is not supposed to be some fluffy, feel-good organization that serves donuts and crumpets and tea. It's supposed to be a disciplined army that turns the world upside down. So we're going to look this evening at one of my favorite passages in the New Testament on this topic that demonstrates a church that is stronger than that. It's a church that's stronger than the Nazis were, than any government, than anything in the world. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 40 to 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to 47. Reading here from the New King James, Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he, this is Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. All right, let's pray again. Father, we come before you this evening with hearts that want to see Acts 2 again in our generation. We want to see the church stronger than that. We want to see an army raised up for our king that would please you that would spread the good news of the one true gospel to all the nations on the earth. I pray that as we come to this, this incredible passage that you would open our hearts, that you would use me effectively to imprint the words of these, uh, these verses, not just on our minds, but in our, our souls and into our affections. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think most of us know the background of this passage. It's, it's a, a key passage in the history of the church. In the beginning of Acts 1, Jesus tells the apostles to go to Jerusalem and to wait there uh, because he was going to give them power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so there's this 10-day prayer meeting that they have, 120 people have in this upper room, and they pray for the, these 10 days straight, and at the end of that, there's this descent of the Holy Spirit who comes down on the people, and that happens now 50 days after Passover, so 40 days after Passover was the, was the ascension, and then 10 more days of this prayer meeting, and so the word Pentecost means 50 in Greek, Pentekonda. And so it's 50 days that it has occurred from the, the time of Passover until then. And the Holy Spirit comes on, on them and they have this worship, this worship uh, 
celebration. They begin to speak in tongues about, it says, the wonderful works of God. And there's an obvious picture here that this represents, which is that in, in Babel, in Genesis 11, there's this confusion that happens as people speak all these different languages and are not able to understand one another, but now they're able to understand one another as they uh, have this power from the Holy Spirit. So God's judgment at Babel is reversed here at Pentecost, where the blessing that was promised to Abraham is finally poured out on his people. And they have this miraculous worship service here that arouses both curiosity. Some people are like, hey, what's going on? This is amazing. And other people say, this is crazy. And they speak disdainfully. But this fulfills the promise from thousands of years before when Moses was also longing and saying, oh, that all God's people would be prophets and that they too would have the Holy Spirit. So that's the context here. The Holy Spirit comes down and that draws a crowd. Peter gives a powerful sermon and then the, uh, the people say that, listen, all right, what do we have to do to be saved? Peter then says that they need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and that they too can have the Holy Spirit that they observed these 120 uh, manifest in their worship and in their speaking in tongues. And then, of course, we have this baptism event of 3,000 souls coming in. And then we have this incredible description of the church life. I'm going to give you, in this message, five qualities that are essential to reproduce this church life here that we see in Acts 2. This is probably the pinnacle of the whole book of Acts in terms of just unity and harmony and evangelistic power. This is, this is the, the peak. So... I want you to, to listen carefully to these five qualities and I'm going to, to uh, call us to hopefully begin to take steps to achieve this. All right, first, first point. Alignment with a strong group is essential to achieve the Acts 2 life. Alignment with a strong group is essential to achieve the Acts 2 life. Okay, so in verse 40, I find it fascinating how Peter supplements or elaborates on what he says when he says, repent and be baptized. It says, uh, Peter says, be saved from this perverse, that's the New King James, the ESV has crooked generation. Okay, he's speaking to Jews, right? This is not speaking to pagans. This is not speaking to Gentiles. Peter here is speaking to Jews. And he, he says it in a very interesting way. He says, there's something broken, there's something wrong in your generation. There's something wrong with your generation. Now, we don't normally speak like this today. We, we tend to emphasize personal sins. That's a valid emphasis. That's certainly true. Personal sins are certainly a deadly problem. But Peter here emphasizes the corporate brokenness, the corporate fallenness of their generation. And he uses this word, crooked or perverse. And he says, you got to come out of this generation. This generation of Jews, by the way, um, is, is broken, fallen, and crooked. How much do we think about our generation and the practices and the values that 
the church holds, that our generation holds, that are crooked or perverse? What are the, the time practices, the work practices, the family practices that are perverse or crooked? I grew up with someone who had really bad scoliosis. So the, the Greek word that's used here when he says, be saved from this perverse generation is scolia. Um, so scolia is crooked. And I think most of you know what scoliosis is, right? It's when you have a crooked back. And I went to public school in California and I think it was every year, the school nurse would come in and we'd have to, to like bend over and touch our feet. And then she would look at our back and figure out if our back was out of alignment. And if we were showing signs of scoliosis, we'd get a referral to the doctor. I don't know if they still do that, but that's what I had to do, at least in public schools in LA. And I had a, uh, uh, someone that I grew up with, a little bit older than me, who had very bad scoliosis. And her back looked like a W. I mean, you looked at her back. I, I can't even replicate it here. It was so distorted. And she was unable to walk her scoliosis was so poor. And I, I remember always feeling heartbroken. She's probably 15, 20 years older than me. She would have to crawl everywhere um, and she would just get on, her, on her, her knees and kind of use her forearms to crawl around because her back was so crooked. The, the opposite of crooked, of course, is straight, right? We all know that. And in the modern especially business world, they use a much trendier word. They use the word, we want to be in alignment. People use that word a lot. Like, how do we get aligned? Must have heard that word a thousand times in various business meetings. We've got to get all of our employees aligned. They all mean, it all just means straight, right? Like on the same, on the same path. Everybody recognizes that alignment is very, very powerful, but very rare as well. So I work with a lot of amazing companies. I work with over 100 publicly traded companies, some of the best companies in the world. I'm, I've been on a lot of boards of companies, and I will say in all my years, less than 10% of companies are really aligned. They're just scattered and people going this direction and that direction, and there's a lot of dysfunction out there. A couple of years ago, I had a flat tire on my Honda CRV, so I, I took it in to the, the shop, got a new tire, and the mechanic said, you're way out of alignment. You're way out of alignment. So I said, oh, okay, he says, I'll, I'll align you for you. Um, so, all right, you can align me. And um, he, he told me about how misaligned the, the little Honda was, and how if you're, if you're tires and your wheels aren't aligned, you get this uneven wear on the tread of your tires. And you can, especially in snow, you can skid, you can lose control. Interestingly, your fuel mileage goes way down if you're not in alignment. Your suspension systems can break. And he said, you should come in here every six months to get your tires aligned. Okay, interesting. That's something I, I thought to do. But what Peter is saying in this is he's saying that the generation that he was living in was one that was crooked. It was perverse. There was something broken about it that causes all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. And he's calling his hearers into a new society, a new group that he wants to be straight, that he wants to be aligned. In, um, I'm ethnically Indian. In India, they love to dance. They love, love, love to dance. And they love particular dances where everyone is in sync and everyone's doing the same thing. 
And uh, there's a lot of movies about this, and I'm sure some of you have seen this. And it's, a, it's actually a very impressive, beautiful sight when you see this, and you see everyone like exactly in sync doing the same thing at the same time. And when you see it, there's a little bit of like, whoa, like there's beauty in that. And the hair kind of stands up on your, on your forearms when you see that done. And if there's one person who's not doing that, all the attention goes on that person, right? You're like, what's wrong with, with him or what's wrong with her? There's something about alignment that is very powerful, particularly at a group level. Okay, so I want us to be thinking for a moment here about what is crookedness? What is perverseness in our generation? I'm going to answer that in the second point. My second point is that sacrifice is essential to achieve the Acts 2 life. All right, so my first point is that alignment with a strong group, and I'll elaborate on this more, is essential to achieving an Acts 2 life. Sacrifice is essential to the Acts 2 life. Okay, so we don't know the, the substance of all that Peter said in this one line there where he says, be saved from this crooked or perverse generation. But I think we can take a very, very informed, probably accurate guess as to what he meant by this. Okay, the reason is because right after that, right after this line, we can see how this new group of disciples behaves and so we can reverse engineer the sermon and say, huh, that's probably what he said. I think what Peter preached to them in that one line, which of course is just the briefest of summaries, is basically what Jesus already had taught to them earlier on in the gospel accounts, teachings about money, teachings about prayer, teachings about, about loving others, obedience to the Sermon on the Mount, and I think the most repeated line that Peter used in that sermon was, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I think that was probably what he, we hammered on the most in that sermon. So why do I say that? I say that because when you read what we just read, well, they're doing all this activity daily in one another's homes, they're going to the temple, they're devoted to prayers and fellowship. Hopefully all of us look at that and say, whoa, how do they pull this off? How do they pull this off? Well, I love that the Bible often gives us a command and then it shows us what the command looks like when it's implemented. Because, hey, we're all slow, right? We need, we need the instruction, but we need the example and we need those to work in tandem. This passage that we just read is probably the single best place in the whole New Testament to see in real life what seek first the kingdom actually looks like. Okay, so we all, we all say that line, we sing the song, seek ye first the kingdom, all that, right? But the question is, is how does that line square with this passage here where they're actually putting it into action? We did a Bible study on this passage a couple weeks ago here on Oakland Street. We did one in Toronto uh, about a month ago. And very often, the, the, the question that emerges is, okay, well, wait a minute, how do they pull this off? Don't they have jobs? What about children? What about changing diapers? What about all the stuff that you have to do? How in the world do you make this happen in real life? What about studying? What about school? What about all the million things that come to your mind when you see this? I, I contend that 
It is possible to do this if this is the singular passion, the singular goal of your life. Now, we live in a very interesting time, and I'm gonna give a little bit of an English lesson here. So we all know the word priority, right? Priority, we use that word a lot. So if you trace out that word priority, it was first used in the English language in the 1400s. So it's a very old word. And the word was singular, priority. It meant the first thing or the prior thing, okay? And interestingly, you can, you can do studies on this and search it out, it stayed in the singular for 500 years. 500 years, everyone used the word priority in the singular. But then, in the 1900s, something changed. The word priority pluralized, and people started to use it and say priorities, okay? I'll read you a quote from an author, his name is McEwen, who says, illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things. Very interesting. Of course, the reality is, is that you can't have multiple first things. You can only have one first thing. You can only have one priority. And it cracks me up whenever I see a company that says, yeah, we've got six priorities. We're going to do diabetes and cancer and da-da-da-da-da. I'm like, no. No. What we see here in Acts 2 is an example of a people that has one priority. That priority is seeking first the kingdom. Of course, you can all tell, we can all tell where your priority is because if you have a collision of, a, of two different demands, whichever demand wins, demonstrates your priority, singular, right? And I want you to use that as a test to, to think about even how you schedule your life, how committed you are to the church. What, what is it that when there's a collision of demands here, what goes? Don't kid yourself and say priorities. What is the priority of your life? I, I often... I'm struck by the practice in the Old Testament. I'm sure a lot of you know this, but God demanded, he required that if you had an animal and uh, let's say you had two goats, you had a, a, a female goat and a male goat, and those goats gave birth to a baby goat, a kid, you were required with any pair of animals you had to sacrifice that first animal to God. You had to go and take that animal and you had to actually kill it and sacrifice it to God as a sign of devotion that God was your priority. And what, what strikes me about it is that, okay, picture yourself, you're living in ancient Israel, you have this, this baby animal here and you sacrifice it. You don't know if there's gonna be a number two or a number three or a number four goat that comes from that, that pair there. This is all you got. Right? This is all you got and God is saying, I want you to take it and I want you to kill it and I want you to give it to me. We, we don't often put ourselves in that position when we think about even that command of sacrificing the firstborn. Right? We, we live in a world of hedging our bets and having lots of things that we hold on to. 
Okay, in the passage that we just read, in verse 42, it says that they continued steadfastly in four practices. That's the New King James' translation. The ESV says devoted themselves. And there's four practices that are used, uh, that are described, rather. So the first one is devotion to the apostles' doctrine, or apostles' teaching. And here, we can ask ourselves, is our devotion to the apostles' doctrine is it sacrificial? For a lot of you, I know it is, but not everyone. For a lot of you, I know, have, have really given your all into devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. Uh, a lot of us, I know, we emphasize a lot at Followers of the Way, daily time in the Word, daily pressing in and really being fed and nourished by the Scriptures. But a lot of people struggle with that, and a lot of people don't have lives where they could say they genuinely continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Is your devotion to fellowship, that's the second point, sacrificial? Okay, so the word here for fellowship is koinonia, and again, we, we've totally lost sense of how meaningful that word is. It's not coffee and donuts after Sunday meeting. Uh, there's in a lot of places there's a fellowship hall that's where they put out the punch and the crackers and all that oh yeah we're having fellowship um, that's not what koinonia is about there's a very good Greek scholar his name is C.H. Dodd he, he did the REB English, uh, English translation he was a, a British uh, scholar and he translates the word koinonia as sharing a common life sharing a common life I love that definition that's often what I think of when I see that word fellowship or koinonia there this is a group of people that was invested tremendously. Now, a lot of people get weirded out because they're sharing such a common life that they're actually sharing their possessions. And it says nobody has, nobody has lack there. And a lot of people say, that's communism. That's communism. What is this? Um, it, it's, it's actually, it's not communism. In communism, what you have is somebody saying, what's thine is mine. But here, in Acts 2, you have what's mine is thine. It's a very different practice. Communism is built on force and on taking what belongs to somebody else and forcibly giving them to somebody else. Here we have a voluntary giving and sharing of what one has in this spirit of achieving koinonia. Is your devotion to the breaking of bread, and I think this includes both communion as well as sharing meals, is that sacrificial? Is your devotion to the prayers? Uh, the ESV gets it right here. Unfortunately, New King James didn't put the article in, but it should be the prayers. They were they continued steadfastly in the prayers. I was talking to, to uh, actually David, who's here uh, after the Therefore Go talk, and he, you, I'm going to use an illustration from you. So you just took the MCAT, did very, very well on the MCAT. And, and we were talking about, you raised the point, he says, what if we were to take the same level of diligence that people take towards studying for the MCAT and apply that to the kingdom, right? What if, what if, wow, like I shudder to think of what would be possible if we had the kind of sacrifice here. And again, think about it. Just ask yourself, have you been sacrificial in your devotion to prayer, particularly corporate prayer, which is what is in view here? Or is it, has it been more of a leftover? 
a throwaway, something that you kind of squeeze in. If, you, if that's the case, it's hard to say that you understand or have been practicing, seek first the kingdom. Okay, my third point is that leadership is essential to achieve the Acts 2 life. All right, my first point was alignment with the strong group is essential. Second point, sacrifice is essential. Third point, leadership is essential to achieve the Acts 2 life. Okay, so when I read this passage now, I think, whoa, how did they pull this off? 3,000 new people, and they're all operating in this level of coordination and unity, and they're going house to house, and in the temple, and back and forth. I think, like, this would have been an organizational feat to pull this off, right? I mean, it's, it's hard enough for us to organize our house to house every, uh, every month, and we've had to get, like, algorithms written and all that to, to try to manage that. Imagine trying to pull this off with daily this kind of level of coordination. It would have been a very impressive feat. But of course, this is what the 12, Jesus' apostles, were called to achieve. So we remember way back in Matthew 9 that when Jesus looks at people, he looks at them with compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They don't have direction. They're just... They're, they're harassed, they're helpless, they're mangled, they're beaten up because they don't have good shepherding. And so he calls his, his apostles, his 12, to remedy that. And here we see them actually pull it off. This is what the solution looks like to Jesus' heart cry where he says, ah, I want my people to, have sh- to, be, to be shepherded. I want my people not to be like sheep without a shepherd. And here we pull this off. This is a great portrait of what leadership should be a striving to. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I often think about like, okay, what were these apostles really like? And I have a little theory here. I'll just share, you, share with you my theory. I could be wrong, but I could be right too. Um, so, so Matthew is, is the first apostle, right? Who is canonically uh, not the first apostle called. And we all know he's a tax collector, right? And think about how in the world you would pull this off. If you were a tax collector, there's no social security numbers back in the day. People don't have an address back then. You've got this incredible mixing of households and all the rest. And you've got to somehow take a pretty big swath of territory and figure out who owes what and, and do this all in a coordinated way, right? That's an impressive feat. Like if some of you, a handful of you have been to India and you go to India and it's like, it's kind of chaotic there. There's just like, you go there and there's just people everywhere and it's like, it's hard to figure out what's going on. People don't, don't really like obey like a lot of the normal rules that we have here. They definitely don't have social security numbers. How would you pull this off? How would you pull this off if you were gonna be the guy to take taxes there? I think Jesus picked Matthew because he saw in him the potential of someone who could organize a big mass of people and actually get them on track and properly shepherded and accounted for. And then, of course, he has this affinity for fishers, people like Peter, James, and John. And that, yeah, we won't talk too much about this, but these were all business people who worked in a really tough industry. Fishing was a tough industry. It's still a tough industry. You've got to manage through abundance and lack. You've got to pay attention to details. You've got to be a hard worker. You've got to be willing to pull all-nighters. You've got to be willing to do all these things to really get your business to to thrive here. 
And he picks 12 people that are able to, to pull off what we see in Acts 2. Now, I want to point this out too, and I'll draw, I'm going to tie this back to followers of the way in a sec, but they don't have it all figured out at this point. They're still, they're still in the dark about a lot of big ideas, okay? So Jesus had already told them, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. At this point, they don't even understand the basics of how they're supposed to relate to Gentiles, right? And we see this kind of back and forth and Peter's experience with Cornelius and the Jerusalem council. And then in Galatians, we see that Peter backs down again. I mean, there's a lot of fits and starts that happen here. They don't have it all figured out. They're dynamically moving through time to get all this, all this, uh, this doctrine worked out and all this practice worked out. Okay, I'm gonna say this now here. We don't have it all figured out by any stretch, okay? We don't, we don't have it figured out. We are dynamically learning day by day, year by year. This is our eighth year. Father's Lay has been here now for eight years. We have uh, congregations in, in places like Uganda and, and United States and Canada and we're figuring it out, and there's a long way to go to figure it all out. So there's a difference between perfection and having it all down, because they don't have it all down, with being committed and steadfast and working together through all of this. I will, I will and I often say this, that I've said this to a bunch of you, is like, I think we're ready for Followers of the Way 2.0, because we've, we've learned a lot, We've grown a lot, but we need, we need to press in more to like new heights of biblical achievement, okay? And I'm not ashamed to say that. I'm not ashamed to say we don't have it figured out and that we're still learning and growing. That's part of what is happening here is a group of people that said like, we don't know. We don't have all the answers figured out, but what we do know, we've got to figure it out. Now that, that might bother some people because I think... We like to believe that like, everybody has it all solid and down and all that, but that's just, not, that's just not reality. And I am so struck, I'm so struck by how you read, for example, in Galatians 2, about how the inner core of the apostolic crew, like roughly 20 years after the resurrection, they're like still duking it out and having these public confrontations and, you know, Paul, Peter, you're wrong, you know, opposing him to his face in a public meeting, right? It's kind of a messy process for the people that walked with Jesus for three years that had incredible advantages that we don't have. So it's okay, we don't have it all figured out, but we're committed to getting as close as we possibly can to this vision. Okay, my fourth point is that ordered health is essential to achieve the Acts 2 life. Ordered health is, is essential to achieve the Acts 2 life. Okay, so I'm gonna draw a picture here that is a picture that I think about all the time, at least once a week, I think about this picture, about what Acts 2 represents, what healthy discipleship looks like. This is a picture I carry with me always. I encourage you to do the same. And the picture, let's see if you can, see if you can tell what I'm drawing here. I'm not a good artist, but... Okay, this is supposed to be a fountain. Have you seen these kind of fountains that have these like multi-tier structures? Okay, so I find these kinds of fountains aesthetically pleasing. And I, I, um, 
this is my picture of discipleship, all right? So here, here is what, what I, I think about when I think of any community, the Acts 2 community, us, is these four levels of, of what it is in our, what should be the order of discipleship. Okay, so the first level here is personal, okay? So personal is the first level. And what Jesus says is, in the book of John, he says, if someone believes in me, out of that person's heart, the King James says belly, will flow rivers of living water. Okay, I take that as a description of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit that comes from the heart, the, the belly, the koilia of the person. And, and the Holy Spirit then fills up a person's life and then you have trickling down out of that, that personal state of fullness, you have trickling out into the, the next level is family. Okay, so the family should be the next place where the overflowing life of the Holy Spirit fills this basin. Okay, just fills that basin and it should be a place of strength and life and health. And then out of that, the waters fill, and then now they spill out into the third level down, which is the church. And the church now is experiencing this overflow that starts in, in the individual, goes into the family, and then in the church. And then finally, out of that is the world. Okay? So you have this cascading downward flow of the, the flow of the Holy Spirit beginning with a person, into the family, into the church, into the world. Okay, this is a really, really powerful figure that I want you to carry with you. We're going to especially talk about the second level here for a moment. Um, but, but I want to touch on all four here. Because I think in Acts 2, we see all four at play. Okay, so the first thing we see is even at the personal level in Acts 2.38... When Peter says, repent and be baptized, he says, each of you, he calls out the individual in that. He, he, this, he doesn't want this to be some like impersonal uh, group decision. He wants every person on their own to make a, a decision to repent and be baptized and to experience the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says in Acts 2.38, okay? And we stress a lot, and I will say it again, if you don't have a daily, vibrant, joyful, overflowing time with God every single day, Something is wrong. You got to stop and get this fixed in your life immediately. You will not progress in any meaningful way until you get this. You can fake it. You can fake it. You can try doing some of these later levels and be basically a blank here. You can maybe try to take the little bit you have and like squirt some of that down over here or here, right? But you're going to be miserable. This is not going to be a true place of, of fullness. It is not a good place to be at all. We talk a lot about the importance of ministering as a family there with rich times of connecting, laughing, sharing life together, family devotions. Again, if you don't have this in your home, I'm gonna tell you, pull the fire alarm, stop, get your home fixed and in order immediately, okay? Like, you, you will, you can, you can jump forward if you want, but it will come back to bite you. I guarantee you will come back to bite you. And Time is not your friend here. We got to be urgent at these levels here. Okay, so this is a, a critical, critical level to, to address. 
the church, we'll talk more about this in a moment. This is, I think, what we see beautifully illustrated in the passage that we just read. And then notice, I, I love this, notice how it describes the evangelism in, at the end of, of Acts 2. Did you all see this? I love the description here of how it, how it says it. Notice how it phrases that evangelism. It says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So it describes this really powerful church and people aren't just like, it doesn't say and, and like people converted or something like that. They were added to the church. Good evangelism is always based on adding into the church because you have this healthy, vibrant church that has the, the rivers of the Holy Spirit pouring from it that draws in the world, okay? So this is what we see in, in Acts chapter two. Now, I wanna, I wanna raise a few more points here about distinctives. Now, of course, this is a citywide, so we're not meeting at homes, but most of our meetings in Followers of the Way, I'm gonna say 90% of our meetings are in homes. And a lot of people are weirded out by that. Like, why do you meet in homes? Is it because you can't afford a, a building? Is it because you're like too junior and like you haven't graduated to the big leagues? Like, what's going on here? And the answer is, is that it's 100% intentional and it ought to be something that we carry forward until the very end. I admit, and I will be the first to admit, it is way more work, it is way more mess, it is way more like, ah, uh, stuff going on in your house, this got broke, this happened, I got blueberry, blueberries ground into the carpet. We, we all know what this is like, right? We, we know that. But this is what Acts 2 clearly says. They're going in and out of one another's homes daily. The reason that we stress this so much here is for many, many reasons. One is that the home is where you are the most exposed, right? Like you people will see the good, the bad, and the ugly. I can tell you right now, if we just had the standard come to a pew and sit there and smile and come there for an hour, go your way, you could get anybody to look good in that environment. It's not hard, but it's when you're in people's homes when you live next to others, when you're in that, that mess, you, you have the, the possibility of exposure, but also, as we'll see, of favor. The home was always, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, was the center of evangelistic activity. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors, and one author says that the church's strategy was evangelization, by, by uh, hospitality, uh, evangelism by hospitality. Interestingly, the two lists that we have about leadership qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, both of them list hospitality as a qualification of being a leader. Isn't that interesting? We emphasize this a lot because we're trying to press in to Acts chapter two. Did you also notice Okay, in, in verse, 22, verse 42, it says they continue steadfastly in those four things, the apostles' doctrine, uh, fellowship, breaking of bread, and, pray, and the prayers. But in 46 and 47, I hope you notice this, it uses the word daily. Did you see that? Continuing daily there. And then in 47, the Lord added to the church daily, okay? Very important to notice those words. We don't want models that are shying away from, 
from the dailies, okay? Okay, so some people say, oh, okay, that, that's fine, that they do that in Acts, but it's not a command given to us. It's not true. In Hebrews chapter three, it says, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, so don't kid yourself that less than daily you're strong enough for, because you're not, okay? We as humans are pulsatile creatures and we need daily, we just do. And I can tell you right now, you can try weekly, you can try, you can try it, it's not gonna work. Okay, so we, we emphasize home and family a lot as the locus of church life, the locus of, sorry, locus of family life, church life, and evangelism. It is a sanctifying experience. We've had some, some good but hard conversations at Oakland Street over the last couple of weeks, and they're very sanctifying, and I'm thankful for it. I was telling my wife the other day, I was like, I'm so glad we're having these conversations because I'm becoming a better Christian through these. Life-on-life life discipleship works much easier if you work in, if you live in proximity. What you see here in this diagram in, of discipleship that is, that is written out for us in Acts 2 isn't just community of place. It is community of time and is community of heart. Okay, so it's not sufficient just to live close to each other or to be in homes. You can do that and that's not gonna be enough. Community of place is supposed to be the starting point to press into community of time, which then should be the platform to press into community of heart. I will also say that if you do this well, particularly in home-based settings, you can effectively draw up others into an effective, uh, effective discipleship as they see the daily life of the church together. I hope this is, this is clear here. I hope that this picture is, is ringing out for you. And as I said, I'm gonna say this again because it's so important. If one of these levels is not in order, stop, pull the fire alarm, call prayer meetings, be radical, fix it immediately. Do not go on, do not go on. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, things will go badly if this is out of order, okay? So just, again, stop and take inventory. There's a lot of ways you can assess each of these here. You can ask me later if you want some diagnostics on that. I find it also so encouraging how when it describes the evangelism fruit that this is the product of in verse 47, it says the Lord added to, uh, to the church daily those who were being saved. This was not them adding, it was the Lord adding. They become weapons in the hands of God who ultimately is drawing in the people. They become the healing bomb that God is using to, to draw in the world, okay? Now, you can resist this at multiple levels. It is, I believe, the result of either ignorance or pride, but please, 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 let's not do this. And it, for us, it follows the way, this is a big aspect of who we are and what we're trying to, to teach. Okay, my, my fifth and final point is that gladness is essential to achieve the Acts 2 life. Okay, so my first point was alignment with the strong group is essential. Sacrifice was my second point. Leadership was my third point. Ordered health was my fourth, fourth point. Gladness was my, my fifth point. 
Okay, so in verse 41, and this is only in the Byzantine or majority manuscripts, but the New King James, which I read, has this in it. It says, those who gladly received his word, or Peter's word, those are the ones who were baptized. There's a major theme that runs through Acts, which is basically how you receive the word is a powerful marker of your spiritual health. There are other people who they receive the word in a very different manner. They receive the word like this. They're kind of like, hmm. They receive the word in a posture of cynicism, in a posture of apathy. I, I'm always encouraged when I see people taking notes when the word is being preached, reviewing it, praying, praying over it, incorporating it. It, it, wow, that is a sign of a person who's gladly receiving the word. They're joyful. I love when we talk about it afterwards and, oh, that was, you know, that was great. Let's talk about this. And that is such a great sign. And notice how that gladness theme continues in 46 and 47. It says, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Simplicity there means generosity. Generosity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Okay. Now, I, I often, when I read this passage, to me, it feels like this is almost like a party. Is that, do you feel like that? It's like, they're just like so glad and they're happy. They're sharing their food with all these different people. They're praising God and they're having favor with all the people. Now, if you want favor with people, you're not going to get it if you're grumpy. You're just not. Grumpiness does not win favor with anybody. These, these people were glad in the sharing of their food and their homes, and they had favor. It's very interesting, uh, this favor word. I, I think Luke is very careful with how he constructs it. When Jesus grows up, it says that he has favor with God and man, and here the church is growing up, and it has favor with all the people as well. There's a parallel there as Jesus' life is birthed in the church, and they both enjoy favor with the people. And Wow, again, the home, the church, these are places that should be winsome, where people are just like, wow, I, I feel magnetically drawn into this place of warmth and joy and love and celebration and worship. That is infectious. Okay, so as I, as I conclude here, I, I want to say that when I see all of us here, I don't view us as an audience I view us as an army. And I want to look at that hill over there and say, we need to be stronger than that. We need to be stronger than that. We need to have a superior discipline over and against the kingdoms of hardness, the kingdoms of cruelty, the kingdoms of destruction. How do we achieve this? Alignment with a strong group, sacrifice, leadership, ordered health and gladness. And it says in there that fear came upon everyone when they saw this. And I believe it's for the same reason that in the Old Testament, when they saw these armies marching toward Israel and they heard the, the thumping of the, of the boots and the, 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 the horses, they were afraid. People here are afraid because they see unity. And they know that that is such a powerful, rare quality that instills fear in, in the hearts, a good fear. Um, some translations use that as awe. <clears throat> I, sometimes, I sometimes hear people say this expression. I'm sure you've all heard this as well. They'll say, oh, I don't like organized religion. You've heard that, right? I don't like organized religion. And they kind of retreat into this more 
mystic, individualistic type religion. I think what they're actually saying there, even though they don't know it, is I think they're saying that they don't like disorganized religion. Um, I think they actually mean that because there's this, there's this kind of no man's land that a lot of the church is in where it's like, it sort of pretends to be this, this great solution to humanity's problems, but it doesn't really deliver. And there's like scandals and all this stuff. And you just sort of look at this and you're like, what is this? I, you just hardly know what to do with it. This is organized in the sense of an army. This is organized in the sense of a beautiful fountain that radiates the power of the Holy Spirit as it flows down into the world. I'm gonna close with a a story here from uh, a military leader. His name is Admiral Hyman Rickover. I don't know how many of you have heard of him, but he is regarded as the father of the nuclear navy. The father of the nuclear navy. Okay, so I'll just read you a little bit of his accomplishments and I'll tell you the story. So uh, it says that one one, uh, one military Authority said, he may well go down in history as one of the Navy's most important officers. He served in a flag rank for nearly 30 years, ending his career as a four-star admiral. Uh, he, He served for a total of 63 years in active duty, making him the longest serving naval officer, as well as the longest serving member of the US Armed Forces in history. The year was 1951, and Admiral Rickover had a top secret project. The project was, they were, the US had figured out how to make a nuclear submarine. And they were recruiting two officers to lead these nuclear submarines. It was a very secret project. And they would bring in candidates who would be interviewed, go through extensive interviews, who would be selected, uh, two would be selected to be these Uh, the leaders, these officers on these submarines. And so everybody wanted this because they knew this was like the great, exciting project that the Navy was working on. And one person who went into an interview with Admiral Admiral Rickover said that his interview was two hours long, so pretty long, and the way that Rickover would do the interview, he would say, this is a question I I heard the, the cadet give his recounting of it, he said, uh, he would say, tell me what music you like. And he said, I like opera. And he said, well, who do you like in opera? He said, Wagner. He said, what piece do you like in Wagner? And I forget the name, he gave the piece. And he says, well, why do you like that? And then he would, he would talk about the movements, specific movements in the piece. And by the time he kind of went through his question, the cadet realized he didn't know the answer to the questions. And this admiral knew more about Wagner and this piece than he did. And then he would say, okay, tell me what books you've read. And he would name a book, and he would keep asking these questions. And next thing you know, he realizes that he was way outclassed by this admiral who knew a lot more about all these these topics. And he did that for two hours. He would just go topic to topic to topic. And at the end of this, he's feeling like, I don't really know anything here. And then he asked one last question. He said, when you were in school, did you do your best? Now, he had actually done well in school, this particular cadet. And he was about to answer yes. But then he said, no, I didn't do my best. And the admiral looks at him with these piercing eyes and says, why not? That's it, why not? The the cadet says that those two words were the turning point of his life because he looked back at all of his 
areas that he supposedly loved and enjoyed, and he realized that he was a bit of a half-committed individual to the things that he said that he believed and subscribed to. That individual went on to be the 39th president of America. His name is Jimmy Carter. And he wrote his autobiography, it was published in 1976, and he titled it, Why Not the Best? Because that question haunted him for his whole life. And he says it was the turning point of his life because he said he finally met someone who called the best out and who wanted and demanded his very best. Interestingly, because he was broken at the end of this, Admiral Rickauer gave him the position and Carter did ultimately lead this nuclear submarine. So my question for all of you is the same as Admiral Rickover's. Why not the best? Have you given your very, very best? Acts 2 is clearly a group of people that have given their very best. I'm calling for everyone in this room for your best. I'm calling everyone in this room to give your life for the church. I'm calling everyone in the room to to seek first the kingdom in this manner here, so that the church may be stronger than that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for not giving our very best. And as here we, we are sitting in this room eight years into the Followers of the Way experience, I know that you're calling us into much much more deeper, more biblical, more committed expressions of faith. I pray that you would first forgive us and second, give us a, a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit that we might fill up this fountain of our life and have it move from personal to family to church and into the world that you, Father, would add to our numbers those who are being saved. Father, we know that in this world of decay and disappointment and cynicism, it is very easy to lose heart. But I pray that we would be glad as we embrace and as we listen to the hard things of Scripture. I think, Father, of those, of those people there that were hearing these hard words of Peter, these words of accusation, these words of, of perversity and crookedness, and yet they gladly submitted to the word. I pray that would be the case in all of our hearts, that we might use our very short lives for your glory. We pray, Father, that the church would indeed be stronger than that in the name of the one who gave his life for the church. Amen.